0: Uh, up to James three and four today, I uh, just want to remind you of uh, some things I, I said, particularly in studying James one. That the context of this letter is that in Acts fifteen, there had been a council in Jerusalem to decide the question of whether the Gentile Christians should be allowed to come into the church without being circumcised and without having to promise to keep the entire law of Moses, and the early Christian community almost divided at that time but, I mean it did ultimately divide but at that time there was a compromise made which allowed them to come in uh, without being circumcised without having to keep the full law of Moses as long as they were sensitive to their Jewish brethren's conscience and so long as they uh, remembered the poor uh, amongst the, uh, the Jewish uh, believers and Paul uh, Gives his uh, take on all that in in Galatians 1 and 2. And so, James is, I suggest, writing another letter. You remember there was a letter sent by James uh, telling the whole brotherhood that this is what had been agreed. And now he writes another letter. (coughs) And in this uh, letter of James that we have here, he's trying to focus people onto personal spirituality. Because whenever there is division and friction within brethren the little ones and that's all of us tend to fall away from personal spirituality and he realized that and he's very wise in writing this letter which does not specifically address the uh, the issue but instead tries to focus people on their personal uh, very personal life with the lord and particularly he emphasizes the need for spiritual mindedness on a totally personal level and to fight against our own lusts within us, and to live in such a way that division between brethren does not happen. And his humility, I think, comes through. He was, after all, the brother of the Lord Jesus, but he never once uses that to sort of prop up his authority. He's really very humble. Now, don't forget, there's been a letter from James talking specifically about all this issue of division and Jews and Gentiles and now there's another letter and everyone's sort of hanging on his every word now is this going to be going on and on about the same old same old is he going to be uh, modifying his position, strengthening it and you know what it's like when there's division uh, between brethren that it's not just a straight clean division between in this case the Jews and the Gentiles there's division within both sides of the division Like the conservative Jewish believers felt, of course, that uh, James was selling out. Um, And the the liberal ones, the liberal Jewish believers, like Paul, felt that the others, who were the hardliners, were not really being Christian. They really didn't get it, etc. And so he says in verse 1, My brethren, be not many masters or teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now, James himself was... Um, a master, he was the leader of the early church and he talks here as we and he goes on in that context to say us to in many things we not some of us but we offend or cause to stumble all, if anyone does not offend by their words the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body and he goes on now talking about the danger of the tongue now Whenever you write a letter like James did in Acts 15, you straight away, even though it was inspired, you straight away into a battle of words. Everyone trying to interpret words, trying to see a subtext, and this has been the history in our own community of attempts to heal division by forms of words. As soon as you get a form of words, that form of words is open to interpretation. And even if it's inspired, as it was in the case of James in Acts 15, it's still open to interpretation and argument, etc. And he talks here, then, about the danger of the tongue, and he includes himself in this. So he's really trying to show a chink in his own armour, because he says, as I read him here, that it's pretty well impossible to totally control the tongue. Um, And therefore, he he says, we, we offend all. So in verse 8, he says, the tongue is untamable. It's an unruly evil. Therewith bless we God, including himself, and therewith curse we men. And this ought not so to be, he says in verse 10. But it's how it is, because he says, we, verse 2, we offend all. We all fail in this matter of the tongue. Now, this is a man writing, albeit under inspiration, but a man writing in the context of having written a form of words in Acts 15 that was sent all throughout the brotherhood, which was open to, of course, interpretation and open to argument about the meaning of those words, etc. And he's saying, look the tongue, the words that we say or write, are very powerful things, and unfortunately we never quite get it right. That's not to say that what he wrote was wrong, because it was, of course, inspired. But what he's trying to do is to take the whole thing onto a higher level. He's saying, look, instead of arguing about words, about what I've written, um, let's just remind ourselves that we all have a problem with the use of the tongue. And it's almost, humanly speaking, uncontrollable. And, you know, when he he says, uh, don't try to be masters, don't aspire to be teachers in that sense, he says, the reason he gives for that is because words are highly culpable at the day of judgment. As Jesus says, uh, by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Therefore, he's saying, don't rush to the podium. Don't rush into print. Don't rush to get all your words out there uh, because, you know, we're going to be judged for our words and you can be condemned because of your words and it's almost inevitable that you won't get it right every time. The tongue is the most difficult thing to control. And indeed, in in a sense, he's saying it's almost uncontrollable. You're never going to quite get it right. And so he, the author of the letter, albeit under inspiration, uh, he says, look, we offend all, and he includes himself. And you see there, I think, a lovely humility. And you see also uh, a real refocusing of everybody upon spiritual mindedness and the personal use of the tongue. Now, in what he he says here about the tongue, here in chapters 3 and 4, There's a lot of connection with Romans 2, particularly the section from 17 to 24, where Paul is criticising, I think, the Jewish Christians. And it seems that James was the first letter, uh, chronologically, that was written. And Paul is not contradicting what James is saying. He's simply developing it and expanding on it. So, when James here... Complains, verse 5, the tongue boasts great things. Romans 2, you as a Jew make your boast of God. He says in 4, verse 15, you should say, if the Lord will, but they thought they knew God's will. Paul says, Romans 2, you think you know his will, so you think. Don't be many teachers. We just read in verse 1 of chapter 3. You are, Romans 2, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. And yet, he says, chapter 4, verse 4, you are adulterers. Chapter 2, verse 11 implies the same. And Paul challenges them in Romans 2, do you commit adultery? And he warns them, chapter 2, verse 9, if you judge others, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors of that law. Romans 2, Paul says, you actually are breaking the law. And here, then in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he complains how rich men bring you before the judgment seats of the Gentiles and blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called. That's actually uh, what James also says in Acts 15, where he talks about God's name being called upon the Gentile believers. And in Romans 2, Paul says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Why I've indulged in that bit of exposition is to show that Paul is alluding to James, but in agreement. And in fact, the letter to the Romans, which touches very much on this whole Jew-Gentile business, is full of allusions to James. And you see it particularly uh, in the argument about faith and works and Abraham in James 2. Paul is clearly referring to that in what he says in Romans 4 about Abraham, faith and works. He's not, as Martin Luther and other ignorant people thought, uh, just contradicting James. He's actually saying the same thing, uh, but he, he's giving uh, more insight, he's developing the thought. So I would argue that James was a kind of um, a standard sort of uh, letter or document about the Christian life. That was common in the early church, as James has appealed for spiritual mindedness, and... Um, Paul is uh, developing that, uh, that document, as it were, under inspiration. So then he, he says in, in verse 3 that the tongue is very powerful, of uh, chapter 3 here. We put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Now, I think James then, as the, the leader of the early church, is trying to say that this is the power of right words. He was trying to turn the uh, divided community around. But then he he says that the tongue really can no man tame. Now, I've argued that that could just be an admission of weakness, that we never quite seem to get it right in our words, because I suppose our hearts, which reflect our words, are never 100% spiritual as they ought to be. But there's another way to to read this. When he talks there about putting bits in the mouth of the horse so it obeys you, he's quoting here, really, from the Septuagint in Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9, where David is reflecting about his experience of forgiveness over the Bathsheba incident. And he says that having experienced God's mercy, there is now no need for a bit to be put in our horse's mouth, uh, because God's grace that we experienced will somehow naturally lead you to speak and be, as you should, graceful. And that is really the case, that no amount of uh, steel-willed control of language ever seems to work out. But, taking the Psalm 32 allusion forward, if we really have felt God's grace, and Paul, in Romans 4, says that David really was the parade example of God's grace, and we are all part of uh, david in his sin there with bathsheba blessed is the the man whose transgression is forgiven david uh, said in his kind of soliloquy after realizing his forgiveness by grace and paul says you know that describes our blessedness every one of us is in his position and therefore you don't need to be like the horse that has to have a bridle put in its mouth your language and your use of language is controlled by your ever-present sense, your awe at the grace that you have received. This is the way to gracious speaking, not steel-willed self-control, because we don't have that steel, unfortunately, within our within our soul. It's realizing the extent of God's grace in forgiving us. So then, the ship is driven he says in another metaphor is driven by fierce winds and this is uh, maybe connected by paul when he says uh, ephesians 4:14 4, that false teaching particularly false judaist doctrine is like a, a strong wind now he, he says that in verse five that the tongue is a little member and the uh, greek word is micro this micro member this micro bit of flesh in, inside your your mouth that uh, rubs against your teeth all the time that little thing can cause so much trouble and Jude 16 talks about great swelling words of vanity words swell up it's the language of leaven or yeast our words he says verse six, 5 and 6 are as a fire and they are set on fire he says verse 6 of Gehenna which is th- the metaphor for the destruction of the wicked at the Day of Judgment. So quite clearly, our words will in some sense be quoted back to us. In some sense, uh, at the Day of Judgment. That by our words we shall be condemned, and by our words we shall be justified. And so, really... Language and how we talk and therefore how we think, this is of absolutely eternal importance. And so you understand why spiritual mindedness is of the absolute uttermost importance. It's so easy to say words. Words are cheap. And that little saying, words are cheap, you should add to it, at the time. Words are cheap at the time. You can say what you want, you can write what you want, you can dash off an email, but the implications of that may be eternal. Now, you know, how would we feel if every email that we've written, if every word we've spoken is quoted back to us at the Day of Judgment? Now, how physically, mechanically that works out, I I have no idea, but I'm sure the meaning of time will have to be collapsed. The whole thing could happen in a in a, a fraction of a second, it could happen in terms of uh, space, spatially, it could happen on a pinhead as well, if you collapse time, I suppose you collapse space, if uh, Einstein had it right. Uh, but my point is, don't worry mechanically how it's going to happen. We, in a sense, at the Day of Judgment, will meet all our words again. And again, another little uh, slick saying, um, may my words be sweet because tomorrow I will have to eat them. And that, that is really so true. It says here, verse 6, that the words defile the whole body. This very much is uh, quoting the words of Jesus in Matthew 15:11. Those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the person. So then, by speaking fire, we are brewing up fire. We are kindling the fire of our own condemnation. At the day of judgment. So then, we really have got to be careful. And yet, there is this uh, niggling problem that verse 8, the tongue can no man tame. What does that mean? And James sang verses 1 and 2, look, don't be so keen to be a, a teacher because that involves using words. And uh, you're bound to get your, your, <coughs> your words wrong and words will lead to your condemnation. So what's the bottom line of that? Well, I suppose there's two answers that occur to me. There's probably many, but one would be that, well, that is true in the flesh, but if we are awed by God's grace, a new man, a new person develops within us, which uh, is different, which doesn't talk like that. Another is to say that James is really arguing here for salvation by grace. He's saying, look, your words will lead to your condemnation. We all get our words wrong at times. The tongue can no man tame. So what's the conclusion? We're all going to be damned, therefore, because we all speak wrong words. No, we're going to be saved, but it's going to be by pure grace. And that, therefore, is how we should should live and act towards others. And, of course, in the context he was writing, the Jew and Gentile issue... That was uh, so relevant. Another thought is that you know he talks here about the the tongue as being like uh, a snake, uh, full of deadly poison. And yet the serpent in Eden was not to be tamed; it was to be destroyed uh, by the uh, by the seed of the woman. So you you could say, well, the victory then in the end is Jesus, is Christ's, and. We simply have got to identify with him. So then, he goes on here, um, again in the context of of how we talk to others, saying, verse 9, therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. And in Genesis 9, verse 6, they're really told back then that because man is made in God's image, Therefore, don't kill other humans. So the fact that all human beings are made in God's image, this means that we should value and respect the human person. We are not to treat any human being as we would an animal or a rock of stone or or a plant or whatever there is something unique in humanity because we are all made in the image of God and this of course includes non-believers as well they are also people they are also made in the image of God so this whole idea of the image of God and humanity is created in that image this is so crucial in teaching us how we should respond and speak in this context to each other And we live in a world, let's face it, where the value and the meaning of the human person is just degraded all the time. So, realising and perceiving that basic implication of Genesis 1, that we are made in the image of God, that enables us, it empowers us to look at each other quite differently. So he says in verse 14, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, you are lying against the truth. Now, there was a lot of bitter envying and strife going on uh, because of this uh, argument about fellowship of the, uh, of the Gentiles. And he says that bitter envying and strife is in your hearts. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, from whence come wars and fightings among you? And there were wars and fightings over this issue of fellowship. And he says, they come from lusts that are in you. Now, this is classic James. This is James, as always, lifting the whole issue of this interpersonal conflict that there was um, onto a higher level, that it's not about fellowshipping the Gentiles. He says, look, it's in your hearts. So then any amount of, any division that there is between parties within Ecclesiastes, is ultimately because of a situation within us. And, you know, it's not a case of that group is right and that group are wrong. The issue is within the human mind. And really, that is uh, just so profound. And I keep talking about this because the issue of division between believers is, I would say... The number one reason, ultimately, why so many people lose their faith. The way that so many people fall away concerns me no end. And in the vast majority of cases, it is not that somebody got genuinely intellectually persuaded by another religion or another philosophy. It is nearly always, in the end, because of interpersonal fallout and friction and upset between persons. And this is really, in my opinion, what really destroyed the early church. Not so much the, the coming in of false teaching, but the, uh, as in, false doctrine and uh, wrong theology. But the ultimate problem, I think, was this division between Jew and Gentile and this argument about the fellowship issue. Now he appeals to them, and don't forget he's writing to Jews who would appreciate this. He says verse. 11, that your tongue, your mouth is like a fountain, does it send forth both sweet water and bitter? No, it doesn't. Now, any Jewish person hearing about sweet water and bitter would immediately have thought, Exodus fifteen twenty-five. that there God proved Israel at Marah, that the bitter waters were made sweet. And how were they made sweet? By a tree being cast into the bitter waters. Now that must look forward in some form to the tree uh, of, of the cross, the tree upon which Jesus was, was crucified. But again, this is the way to, to change that, bitter, that bitterness to, to sweetness. It's the great paradox. Uh, but how, how does that work out in, in practice? Well, here we are focusing ourselves upon the death and resurrection of the Lord, and if we really perceive him there, we will not in any form be able to talk bitterly afterwards. It cannot be like that. Because he there, and the fact he did this for me, influences me. And it influences, therefore, the way I will speak. One theme of James is a criticism of how the the richer Jewish brethren were treating their poorer Jewish brethren. And he has quite a bit to say about this all the way through the letter, including uh, in uh, chapter 4 particularly. And again, the context is there in Acts 15 and in Galatians 1, where the deal was that, okay, the Gentiles didn't have to keep the law of Moses, didn't have to be circumcised. But they should remember the poor, which Paul says in Galatians, I was very forward to do that, Um, to remember the poor Jewish believers. And yet the point is that the richer Jewish believers, to whom James, it seems, is writing here, they were not looking after the poorer Jewish brethren, but were rather abusing them, not paying them their wages, he says in chapter 4. And so, I think what he's saying is, look, you're exhorting the Gentile Christians to be generous to the poor Jewish believers, but you're not doing it yourself. So, in chapter 3, verse 17, I think he's got that in mind, where he talks about being without hypocrisy. And, you know, in Galatians 1, Paul says that the problem with the Acts 15 decree was that it made hypocrisy, that He accuses Peter of being a hypocrite. He says Peter used to break bread with the Gentiles, but when some came from James, and I think they were just saying they came from James, uh, then he stopped breaking bread with the Gentile Christians, and he refused to break bread with them while these other hardline brethren were there. And Paul says, look, this was hypocrisy. And he uses that word. And so here, James, in a more gentle way, perhaps, is making the same point. Don't be hypocritical. And he says that... You should be, verse 17, easy to be entreated. People should feel that they can come to you. And again, I would argue that this is in the context of his appeal throughout this letter, that they should be generous to their poorer brethren. Now, you know what it's like when you yourself have a problem. You think, who shall I go to? I couldn't go to him. No, we can't ask them no, we, we, no, no, I just couldn't even begin to raise the question with her, you know. Um, and we we don't want to be people like that. We should be people who are easy to be entreated, and of course we have plenty of practice, or we should have, of entreating, because we entreat God. And He's very easy to be entreated, and that is how we should be in our attitude to to others. So then all the time he's saying that going on now in chapter 4 that wars and fightings come from within you. And that Greek word for fightings you can scribble down Titus 3 verse 9, 2 Timothy 2 23 and 24 he's talking about division and argument within the ecclesia and he says in verse 2 you lust and don't have, you kill and desire to have and can't obtain, you fight and war now he's using very strong language here but he's basing himself In Matthew 5, where Jesus says that to hate your brother is to kill him, is to commit murder. And, in other words, therefore, to make a division within the Ecclesia is to fight and to war. So he's using what apparently seems to be uh, tough language. Like in verse 4, he says, you are adulterers and adulteresses because you are friendly with the world. You're unfaithful to the Lord Jesus. Now, that is in reality how serious it is to have any kind of hatred against our brethren, against anyone. And he says in chapter 2, verse 23, that Abraham was a friend of God, but here he says, you are friends of the world. So those Jews who are so separate from the world, he's saying you're not really the children of Abraham. You can be externally separate, but actually you are of the spirit of the world. And he he says in verse 5 of chapter 4, The spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. This is as if he's saying that we have a natural tendency towards envy. And this was the whole problem between Jew and Gentile. It was an issue of envy, Uh, particularly the Jews, I think, against the uh, Gentile people. And this is, I think, the root of so many divisions and upsets between persons and groups of believers. It's jealousy. It's nothing more. But he says there that the scripture says, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. But where? Well, all I can see is Genesis 6 verse 5 and 8.21, which talks about the spirit uh, that was dwelling in the people at the time of Noah. And that generation was destroyed. And I think he's saying that, look, by nature, by tendency, we're no better than that generation that was wiped out in the flood. And, again, you know, it's always in this context of Acts 15 that the Jew-Gentile problem was really about envy. And he says in verse 12 of chapter 4 something pretty profound. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you that judges another? The implication of that is that as soon as you judge another, as soon as you condemn your brother, like by... Uh, by saying, you, know, you will not be in the kingdom unless you keep the law of Moses, you are effectively writing another law. And we might not think that, that uh, because uh, he's not a Christian, we might say, I've caught myself saying that, she's just not a Christian, she doesn't get it. Well, you know, we're writing another law by saying that. We're saying so and so and so and so, he's not going to be in the kingdom of God because I say so. And... Again, Paul in Romans is alluding to this when he says, Who are you, Romans 14, 4, that judges another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. For God is able to make him stand. Who are you that judges another? As I say, Paul repeats this uh, in agreement and says, again in the same context of Jew and Gentile argument within the Ecclesia. Who are you to judge another? And so... We come now to focus our minds upon the uh, upon the bread and wine and upon the Lord Jesus on the cross, and let's just remember that that was the tree that was cut down, as it were, and had Jesus put on it, uh, and was lifted up, and it was prefigured in the cutting down of the tree and the flowing of the tree into the bitter waters and making them sweet. This really is the key to changing us, to changing our our words. And again, I like that uh, connection there when we talked about the tongue is like uh, our mouth and you put a bit in the horse's mouth to turn it around alluding to Psalm 32, 8 and 9 that really that is exactly our, what, what we don't need anymore if, like David, we have been convicted of our sin and are convicted of God's grace to us that somehow, naturally Your speaking, your thinking, your way of being will simply be different. And it's not a case of steel-willed self-control. Because we don't have that iron in the soul, that steel in our character, in in our psychology. We don't have that. And yet the experience of God's grace and the certainty of salvation, which is there for us, this is what fundamentally should change us.